Welcome back to the Doc Stops Here, University of Oregon's award-winning podcast. I'm Michelle Joyce Fife. Today's guest took the story of a family trauma and turned it into an award-winning stop-motion short film. It felt like my mom was reliving like a grooves in a record, just replaying the story over and over and over again. And uh, I found it so strange until I actually grew up and studied trauma therapy and went to counseling. And uh, uh, it was just a very strange thing that she would just sort of go into and it would come up all the time. That was Tiffany Kimmel talking about the film Everybody Goes to the Hospital. And it's been creating quite the buzz on the film festival circuit this year. She's here to talk to us about what it's like to make art out of uncomfortable truths and family secrets. She's currently working on a documentary about a class action lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Education regarding the experience of LGBT students at religious universities. A big welcome to Tiffany Kimmel. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So... Your family did not approve of you attending the University of Oregon uh, in the first place. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So I was religiously homeschooled in rural Oregon for K through 12th grade at home with my mom. And uh, we had started attending community college through this sort of weird uh, side program uh, in the early 2000s. And uh, she really, really, really wanted me to go to a Christian university. And my brother had gone to George Fox and she thought, this is the next step. You're going to go there. You're going to get a major in biblical studies and this would be the right thing for you to do. And she didn't exactly have a, a clear plan other than go to Bible school, get a degree in sort of a religious studies. But in the end, my my mom, uh, she she was more angry that I took an extra year at U of O and transferred into the journalism school and, and switched that classics degree into um, electronic media than she was about the uh, the school itself. Though there was a lot of talk of this is going to this is going to ruin your life. This is going to turn you into a liberal person. I don't know. I don't know. You're going to you're going to come out of that the other side and you're not going to be the same. Yeah, uh, same girl. I was like, she oh, was right. She was. She was right. She was. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it it was this. It was a, a huge transition because I'd never ever been alone. I think I spent less than three nights away from my parents uh, until I went to the U of O. So it was this huge moment of transition, and then I felt like I had to immediately pretend that I was cool and that I knew what I was doing, and uh, that that just wasn't true. Uh, so, <laughs> Well, it's interesting. So you went to the U of O, and you majored in, like you said, electronic media production, and now you're working on a docu-series about sort of your religious upbringing and um, all of the things that almost prevented you from attending U of O. Yes. So <laughs> it's funny, come full circle, uh, in about 
2012, a childhood friend who was raised in the same evangelical fundamentalist community uh, came to me and was like, Tiffany, you, you study journalism. Uh, I think I think you need to help me kind of capture some stories of queer students on Christian campuses that are, you know, all surviving in these underground groups. And uh, nobody's talking about it, but it seems to be pretty widespread. And uh, Paul, our subject in the doc, uh, he, for full disclosure, was supposed to be the man I was intended to marry. Our mothers had this big sort of plan. We ourselves might have been a big part of the reason they even thought that because we just assumed in our upbringing, like, of course, we're going to marry each other because we are clearly the most intelligent people that we know, and this is God's plan, take over the, the U.S. for God and country and, and be that perfect model couple. Uh, <laughs> turns out Paul's gay and uh, discovered this while in college at George Fox and uh, during two years of conversion therapy. So he'd gone through this horrific process of uh, coming to terms with his own identity and realizing that he was no longer a believer and being rejected by so many of these same conservative groups that he had been kind of fighting with that uh, when he kind of went through that whole process, he came back around and said, I think we need to protect other people. Let's go collect their stories. So we kind of decided to, at the time, I think we went to 30 different schools and talked to 45 different students of all ages who at the time it was 2012 and it was not really okay to publicly be gay and Christian. And so there were just sort of these invisible fault lines all over the place. And then marriage equality happened, and we were like, oh, maybe this project is dead. You know, maybe this isn't mm-hmm. a problem anymore. Like, uh, these yeah. schools are going to Problem up solved. <laughs> problem solved. And uh, for a little bit, we kind of pushed pause and said, this is fine. Okay, you know, we might finish this as a book. And uh, then obviously Trump was elected and everything was kind of chaos. And Paul had been doing individual cases during that time of trying to uh, help different students who were getting expelled or sent to conversion therapy or um, sort of. Because Paul's a lawyer. Paul. Oh, yes. Thank you. Paul is a lawyer. (laughs) He's a lawyer. He went to Michigan law and sort of had been in all of these uh, conservative think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, and which is connected to the Supreme mm-hmm. Court, uh, the Thomases. Yep. And uh, he had worked with sort of the lead of that group um, against abortion rights. He'd been working against gay rights and uh, marriage equality. He'd been working... Um, I suppose uh, more of my talking points from from that, I I was opposed to the um, doctor-assisted suicide laws in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So when Mm -hmm. we were kids, we were talking on the Capitol steps about um, why these laws should be rescinded. And so tell me a little bit about the experience. I mean, so the docuseries is not finished yet. You have sort of a proof of concept right now, and you're shopping it around looking for buyers to help fund um, the completion of the product and then also to um, air it as well. 
it's funny. It started out that basically in 2020, Paul came to me and was like, okay, I'm going to launch this lawsuit against the Department of Education. And here we go. We're getting to do uh, interviews of plaintiffs. And I just want to keep extending sort of that oral history project. But now we're here and we have this sort of big goal. And I want to capture all this in real time. And I was like, okay, we're in the middle of a pandemic. How mm-hmm. do we do this? What exactly is the um, lawsuit? So he launched this big class action lawsuit that has over 40 plaintiffs oh, wow. that are all across the U.S. And they are attending all sorts of Christian colleges from Baylor to Liberty to George Fox, Seattle Pacific, uh, here in Malibu, Pepperdine or Bob Jones. And so Paul uh, has collected stories and plaintiffs from a wide variety of schools uh, and sort of even crossing some of the Christian lines between uh, like all faiths, basically, uh, to kind of build this story of religious exemptions. So he's suing on behalf of these plaintiffs um, with, to define what religious exemptions through Title IX are. Because right now, a school can receive federal funds in the forms of of, uh, financial aid, federal financial aid, that uh, are legally allowed to discriminate against students who violate violate their lifestyle policies. So these schools can uh, include... uh, being queer as a lifestyle violation. And so there are hundreds of and thousands of students who kind of fall into this little uh, space where financial aid departments can strip them of funding in year three, where someone like a roommate can discover that you were a lesbian and out you to the housing department and you can lose your room. Um, so they're kind of pitting students against each other. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, instances of people being sent to conversion therapy under a different name that uh, it's changed quite frequently in the last decade. Uh, there's also a lot of instances of people being, uh, stripped of their jobs for support of queer students as well as, uh, the named plaintiff, Elizabeth Hunter, was fired from her job at the university television station because of her uh, tweets. They were pro uh, LGBT tweets, not even statements that she made. She was just retweeting things and she was let go. So there's a lot of these kinds of incidences all over the place. Uh, And obviously with what's happening in Florida and Texas with the don't say gay bans and even now, sort of the argument between Disney and the state of Florida, it's just blowing up in a way that I don't think anyone anticipated would be this public. And so is the thought that his case will end up before the Supreme Court? Right now, uh, there are six open investigations from the Biden uh, administration into complaints that's go back to Paul's case and filing, which is really exciting because the, uh, 
he doesn't really want this to ultimately end up at the Supreme Court and no uh, no liberal judge does either, because obviously that would present a whole host of problems for equality rights in general, um, especially given the situation of Roe. So, you know, we're, we're at that point where, uh, no, we, we'd love it to do, present lots of things that can provide opportunities for not only the administration to make some significant rules and changes, but also alert people to the need for grassroots efforts to continue to push forward. And what's special about Paul and even the way that we were raised, this sort of uh, Heritage Foundation uh, philosophy uh, is has been tested in French groups like our Christian homeschooling for the last 40 years. Uh, and now we're seeing how they've used tiny efforts in small state assemblies, in school boards, in all of these small areas that can be easy to overlook or not see, and using that to foment people into action. And they've done it for... Uh, such a sustained period from row forward, trying to defund schools. It happened in Oregon. Um, and that is part of the reason my mother pulled me out of a rural school. Uh, I did not take a secular, as we would call it, a secular uh, science course until I got to college. And so, you know, I went to creation workshops that talked about the earth being created in a literal seven days. And, uh, you know, this was the level of the uh, programming was quite intense. When you got to UO, I mean, what was that process like? Did you understand that it was going to be so different? Well, I'm, I'm lucky because I was allowed to have a, a dual reality my extended family was not religious and I lived on this weird family compound in the middle of nowhere. And so we were surrounded by a lot of non-believers that were relatives that we spent a lot of time with. But I also uh, was fortunate to, to take college level classes in high school at the community college while still participating in this larger homeschool community. And that started a process, um, and it took it did it took a, a long time. I, I didn't fully break up with Jesus until after I left college. Uh, I was still trying really, really hard to make both worlds meet. And I think if my parents had been a little bit more understanding uh, or engaged, I wouldn't have at all. But because my mom kept having these sort of outsized reactions, she sent everyone from our church to pick me up on weekends the first year. So I was taking all of these classes, ancient Greek, Latin, and uh, ancient science and ancient food. And she would send someone different from our church every Friday afternoon to pick me up and bring me home so that I could stay as involved in the family church. So the first year I wow. made no real friends because I was just gone. And it was so intense trying to balance two worlds. Um, I didn't realize that. That Well, it's funny because didn't you 
uh, eventually meet your husband at UO? We met because I was living next door to the university in sort of this funny little um, Christian homeschool community. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of a part of the arts organization associated uh, with this this group. And we met in a hallway. And I think I was bitching about modern musicals or musicals in general. Like they weren't my thing. <laughs> and he's a composer and had gone to the music school. And I was like, like, hey there. No, hey. let me yeah. tell you the other side of the story. Yeah, yeah. He was like, Sondheim is a genius. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess I only know a few things. But um, it, it's funny. Now, all these years later, he looks back and, and thinks about how Yuvo was this sort of wonderful experience for him, but that he he too, we were both sort of outsiders on the uh, on the fringe um, because he came from Eugene and and lived there his whole life. And so he didn't participate on campus in the same way. And he was a part of, and so when we met, it just seemed so natural. Like, oh yeah, we completely get each other. And so the two of you, um, I saw that he is one of the collaborators on um, the stop motion project called Everybody Goes to the Hospital that has been winning lots of awards this year at film festivals. Um, And it's, also a very personal story because you were talking about how your mother didn't really understand how to support you when you were going to U of O, but the story itself is about how your mother as a child didn't have the support of her mother when she was going through a medical trauma. Do you want to, I don't know how much you can say about the, about the film. Oh, I'm more than happy to tell you everything. Um. (laughs) Uh, yes, that is a, 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 a beautiful way of putting it. My mother um, had trouble supporting me because her mother had trouble supporting her. And uh, my great grandmother, who I happened to know until I was about 12, also had trouble supporting her daughter. And so you can kind of see that almost epigenetic uh, line straight down uh, of women who, because my great grandmother's mother died when she was 12 years old, never learned how to take care of her children and was was absent during the war effort. And then my grandmother was not sure how to attach to her daughter and how to take care of her. She had not intended to have a second child. And then my mom had been told after this horrific incident that she might never have children and and then she did and it was so hard to let them go and so any anything that she could do to protect us to keep us close we were the most precious unexpected thing in her life and sometimes that pushed a little bit farther uh so so uh, Everybody Goes to the Hospital is uh, a nine-minute stop-motion animation that Mackenzie and I made about my mom's emergency appendectomy when she was four in 1963. Uh, 
And it's a really special little project that would have never come about had the pandemic not happened. Um, I had been working for um, this kind of crazy design firm inside of a film production finance company in Beverly Hills. And uh, when we were all sent home, uh, chaos ensued. And eventually, a lot of the futurists and designers and engineers and VFX artists were all sort of shuffled. And uh, I got to meet the executive architect of the new Star Wars land um, and a lovely Disney Imagineer by the name of Greg Ashton. And he and I had all of these projects we had to finish. And Disney had put everyone on hold with an indefinite return to work timeline. And so uh we were sort of contracting and snatching up all of these wonderful, talented people to help us work on these future city projects that were marrying really high-end VFX with uh, real-world architects and engineers and whatnot. And so the film itself, I have to say, um, you were kind enough, you sent me a little sneak preview of it. You kind of warned me. You said, this is kind of, you know, people are a little bit disturbed after watching this. And and then I understood what you meant. There was one moment in the film where the little girl is like in the hospital bed recovering from this horrific surgery that had gone wrong and lasted like three days or something. And um and then her mother's like, you've cost us enough money. Get up. We're going home kind of kind of a thing. And it really was uh, about family trauma and everything. And um, I mean, I realized it was disturbing when I watched it. And then the more time that went on, um, I found myself thinking about it more and more and becoming more and more um, disturbed. And I think the thing for me that made the film resonate so much is that the narrator is the just the sweetest little like five-year-old voice and I don't know how you were able to get such a performance out of such a young child and this is a a neighbor of yours a a friend's child it is so uh when we were conceiving or when I was conceiving of the story I originally thought I wanted to tell the story the way that my mom and my grandmother would tell it because it would come up all the time. Uh, And my grandmother lived next door and would come down for lunch. So homeschooled, we're at the lunch table for break. Grandmother comes down. She and mom are cutting up lunch with their paring knives and they're retelling this tale as if it's a storybook, like beat for beat. What you saw was how they would do it. So uh, I don't like little girls that cry. And my mom would use her knife and point at the carrot. And then my grandmother would say one of the other lines. And so I had always imagined that if I ever told the story, I would tell it with like this narrator who would do all the parts because it felt like my mom was reliving like a grooves in a record, just yeah. replaying the story over and over and over again. And uh, I found it so strange until I actually grew up and studied trauma therapy and went to counseling. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was just a very strange thing that she would just sort of go into and it would come up all the time. 
And I have to say, like, your grandmother is not the hero of this story at all. And I am surprised that she would like to retell it. So the story, this story is the middle of a, a triptych of stories. My grandmother told no one that she was pregnant with my mom until she was five months along. She was married, and she, but she didn't want anyone to know. She'd already had a child. Uh, eight years prior, she started taking some thyroid medication and was like, oops, here we go. I have this new baby. I don't want it. I don't know what to do. So she told no one. And then she had my mom, was knocked out uh, under ether. And, and when she woke up, she discovered she'd broken her tailbone in the birth. They had used forceps. And so they actually hurt my mother's um, skull uh, and like pressured her sinuses for years. And th her favorite actor, Clark Gable, had died while she was under. And so instead of asking <laughs> to see the baby, she... How's Clark Gable? <laughs> she finds the nurses are talking about Clark Gable. She bursts into tears and oh like does not touch the baby. It's an baby. emotional time. It's an emotional time. Emotional time. She does not touch my mother. They do not have the mother-child uh, attachment that happens when they put the baby on your shoulder. There was no yeah. touching. So they, you can see in photographs, like my grandmother's totally disinterested. And my mom is oh, this so super sweet looking little girl who until the, the trauma at the hospital looks ecstatic and happy. And then this happens. And... In every photograph afterwards, she looks like a ghost of herself. It's really stark. Uh, and so uh, she kind of goes through her parents not believing her that she's still sick. They all had the flu, but she didn't get better. And then she, they t finally take her to the doctor and uh, or the hospital. And they're like, how long has it been since her appendix burst? And uh, it had been a week. And so in that time, as anyone who's been through this trauma knows, sepsis is super dangerous. So sepsis had set in and it had turned to gangrene of the intestines. And so at the time, 1963 is the year that they discover how to save children um, who have leukemia. And they, up until this point, it was just a death sentence to take your kid to the hospital for anything like that. So my grandmother and grandfather are primed. This is, she's dead. And it's a pretty, <laughs> you know, it's a pretty gruesome thing. They, they basically had to do emergency surgery. She was allergic and no one knew to the medication. So she stands up on the table and they see her. Like cut open. Cut open. Uh, and so then they have to come up with a plan B of what to do. And so then they uh, have to do the surgery again. And then this time they have to remove all of her organs and hand wash them and then put them back. And so the way they always mm -hmm. described it and the way that I depicted it is not medically accurate. It is very <laughs> much how they would tell the story of like, and they remove them one by one. And put them into clean little bowls, sanitary medical bowls. And uh, the doctor, I'm not sure if the doctor literally told my grandmother that they weren't sure if they put the ovaries back in the right position. But that is how my grandmother remembered the information being conveyed. And so my and they didn't tell her. They didn't tell your mom because they didn't want her to be like a loose woman. Yeah, they didn't want her to be a loose woman. But then later on, I think once she and my father 
were married, it was like, well, you, you might not be able to have kids, by the way, because, uh, yeah, by yeah, the way, by the way. And so then she, she was pretty convinced that she was broken. So fast forward, she also doesn't want to have a second child. And my father says, oh, we can't just have one. We have to have another one. And I'd like a girl. So he convinces my mom, we're going to have a, a daughter. And uh, they, she is immediately and horrifically sick the entire pregnancy. Uh, mm. The stories of my, uh, my birth are very much of my mom vomiting constantly and being laid into the bathtub when my dad would go to work and pulled out at the oh end of the day gosh. when he would come home because she was oh, so, so sick. Um, so she, she has this going on, but the, uh, at the same time, and this is where it, this triptych comes back together. Uh, she goes in for her checkup. I'm due in a month. I'm due in May and her doctor's on vacation and they say, um, something's wrong. The baby's not moving. Baby might be dead. We don't know what's happening. But um, you need to stay. And uh, we need to have an emergency C-section now. Now, uh, she had been cut across her abdomen as a small child. And they had to cut her again in the same spot. And she had mm. been horrifically scarred then. And uh, emotionally and physically and physically. And they're telling her, your doctor's not available. Here's a substitute who she did not like. And it's also the day that they're testing the emergency system at the hospital. Oh, my gosh. So there's alarms going off. Alarms are going off. They're rushing her in. It's chaos. They don't know that she has preeclampsia. So when they pull me out, she starts to bleed. And oh my gosh. it's just a horrific nightmare. They rush me to the birthing room. They don't put me on her chest. They don't stick us together. Mm-hmm. Instead, my grandmother comes running in. And she runs into the baby uh, delivery room. And she says, that's my granddaughter. And she grabs me. And we have the bond that my mom and her mom didn't get to have so even though my grandmother's super complicated as a human being we have this the mother-daughter bond and it becomes this really like sad tale of watching my mom and her mom miss each other and me and my mom miss each other and my grandmother and I having this like deep almost conspiratorial glee of 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 life and so even in telling the story she doesn't come off very well but for her she would be delighted she's the skinny puppet she looks great she's got a good outfit and good hair she is the skinny puppet (laughs) and that's how that's how she would look I, I, I when we were at the Alameda Film Fest some of the older audience members were really angry they were my grandmother's age and they're like why did you tell the story and take your mother's side and the way that you told it I was like Wow. I wouldn't say this movie or little film is about sides at all. It just is from the daughter's perspective looking out. And that's yeah. that was her emotional perspective. And uh, this woman was just like, well, what did your grandmother think? And I'm like, well, unfortunately, my grandmother passed away a few years back. But I know that this is exactly how she would tell the story. And um, 
she would have been delighted about her puppet. So she would have been fine. Her been, puppet looked fantastic. Yeah, that was what mattered. How did, you, how did your mom like the film? Uh, <laughs> she ultimately loved it. She asked if she could have her puppet. But it was really hard for her to watch because it's still very much an unprocessed trauma for her. And Did it help her to process a little bit or... I, mean, I, th- I think ultimately, yes, it's prompted a lot of conversations. It's prompted a lot of um, sort of revisiting the past. But she's been someone who was highly resistant to therapy for a very, very, very long time. And it was really difficult for her to even imagine sort of moving past this. Uh, and so watching it... She, she she laughed and looked over. She cried through the film. And then she looked over at me and said, well, you only got two things wrong. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> what did I get wrong? She was like, mom didn't smoke. And uh, dad also was in the waiting room and passed out when he saw me standing on the table. And uh, I was like, well, that's, that's pretty great. The, those are the two things that I didn't know. Uh, but also... Grandma looks cool smoking and in stop motion. Mm-hmm. And she has uh, also a very raspy voice like the child uh, narrator. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a smoking era. Uh, it was indicative of the time. And interesting as well, because, you know, I was kind of thinking the women at that time, their value uh, in society really was very uh, limited to some narrow areas. And one of them was motherhood. And how maybe it must have felt for her to, I mean, surely she knew that she wasn't the most supporting, loving mother. Um, I don't know. It's just, like I said, I think it's very interesting that she had that bond with you and kind of um, got a little redo in a way. In a, yeah, in a way. And it, it's interesting because I think looking at even how on on her deathbed she was worried about my mom. She was worried she wasn't going to be okay. And uh, trying to communicate that to my mom, it's like, I've never felt that kind of support from her ever. I was like, I know, I think you guys have just a huge disconnect as people. And that's nothing that is right or wrong. It just is your different personalities, different upbringing, and different expectations from each other. And uh, she does love you. Well, I think that that message, well, clearly it's resonating with people. You guys are winning film festival awards left and right. What's what's that been like? Well, I, I was a little scared because coming out of the pandemic and having never made an animated anything, much less directed something of my own before. I wasn't sure what to expect. And right out of the gate, we got an award from Phil Tippett, like the VFX animation guru. guru. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was like, uh, chess set in Star Wars or the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park? Like he, he gave our <laughs> project an animation award in his name. And we were like, whoa. That's amazing. I don't know. It was it was really special. But then we also have won two other best animation awards, and people have been so so kind to the project. And it's just an unusual 
kind of story to be told in this medium. And I I would argue it's kind of an unusual story in, in general. Um, very, very cool. And so you have a couple more film festivals coming up and you're continuing to enter? I think we at- have 30... 30 submissions out there, but we know we have two more coming. And we've been invited by two different European fests to uh, their competition. Um, So it's just it's it's just sort of starting to go out and and meet other filmmakers, which is really exciting. Well, you are crushing it. And I feel like, you know, we're definitely going to keep in touch and um, keep posting about you on our social media pages as you have projects coming out. And um, just really quick, I know that you're also organizing some live shows in your neighborhood and um, would definitely love to be joined by any ducks who are available in Los Angeles. You want to give a quick little plug for what you're doing? Yes, absolutely. So because of the short, uh, Bob Baker Marionette Theater here in Highland Park, Los Angeles, has invited uh, Mackenzie and I to host, uh, co-host with them, a variety show ongoing uh, every quarter. uh, And it's called Art is Life is Art. And our next one is on Friday, July 22nd which is super exciting. And our, our theme is awareness hurts. And so it's a, a mix of marionette, traditional marionette puppetry. Um, there will always be some sort of avant-garde puppet show or magic show. Uh, and there will be comedians. Uh, we were super excited. We, we had done sort of a screening there and had uh, three comedians. And one was an experimental um clown who's just now sort of breaking in the LA Fringe Fest. Uh, one woman uh, just had an HBO Max special. Her name's Ashley Ray. Super talented. And it's just a, a, a way for us to like bring musicians and sort of uh, artists that are sort of breaking all kinds of genres together and center a show around a theme and sort of build community the Bob Baker is really a special place. He had worked um, building puppets for Disneyland on Main Street. He worked uh, building puppets for the original Star Trek, bed knobs and broomsticks and and like close encounters of the third kind. So like they have this like storied past that's in this beautiful uh, sort of odd art form that is such a, a wonderful part of the Los Angeles community and they've they've sort of struggled on and off throughout the years to survive and now they're thriving here and able to bring in other artists and talent and foster new opinions and, and it direction. It's just very exciting to get to be a part of building out and uh, sort of the, the weirdo art scene <laughs> in the community. That's amazing. I love that. And I hope that I can come down and come to one of those. And if somebody, uh, if anybody listening is interested, you can reach out to us through the podcast and we will get you in touch with Tiffany. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you for having me. I just absolutely adore what you are doing. And um, it's just awesome to be a part. Thank you. Thank you. Go Ducks. Go Ducks.